Welcome to Circus Voices, brought to you by CircusTalk.com, the leading online casting marketplace for circus and performing arts, and an essential resource for circus and multidisciplinary artists and talent seekers. I am your host, Jonathan Lee Iverson from In Center Ring. Our podcast features engaging conversations with acclaimed international experts, including professional artists and talent seekers seekers, creative leaders, influential coaches and teachers, and industry innovators. These interviews offer you insight into the diverse and dynamic world of circus and performing arts. In this week's episode, we welcome Philip William McKinley, celebrated and renowned director, choreographer, writer, and producer of record-shattering extravaganzas the world over. From Salzburg to Tokyo, Broadway to Las Vegas to the circus, he is an artist of immeasurable depth, range, and generosity. In this episode of Circus Voices, McKinley shares with us unforgettable anecdotes from his remarkable career, the sage advice of mentors that still him decades later and he'll recount for us a real-time example from one of his more recent endeavors of how live shows may COVID proof their productions we have a special one here we're so happy to have with us the imminent the dynamic the wonderful philip william mckinley are we going philip william mckinley or we're just going phil mckinley are you doing phil mckinley whatever you prefer (laughs) <laughs> don't 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 call me late for dinner yeah well see i'm here to give you your your shot on a podcast as you gave I appreciate that shot in circus as everybody <laughs> knows you're the one who gave me my my yellow brick road to the greatest show on earth and i'll always be eternally great i even came with my hat my special i see that i see that gina cristiani the dynamically talented gina cristiani made it for me just for this occasion <laughs> oh fantastic so you, so you didn't take that from the Feld collection? No way. <laughs> I don't live dangerously. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. It's really good to see you. I'm glad you, uh, you too. were able to stop by. And I mean, your career, it just, it's so dynamic and illustrious. Reading your site um, is wonderful, you know, from Broadway to Salzburg to Tokyo. To the big top. I mean, your career is really so dynamic and and just wonderful. And I want to really hit on that uh, quickly. You know, I mean, I can imagine creators, producers, what have you, budding creators, budding directors who have big ideas, who actually have this idea of what's the standard of making it um, in this business. You know, what is that? I mean, you've directed everything from dinner theaters to off, off Broadway to Broadway, to saving Broadway, <laughs> to, you know, big dynamic record-breaking extravaganzas. Obviously it takes a diversity of skill, imagination to be able to exist in so many different platforms. Where does that come from for you? I think it comes from never saying no. <laughs> um, I, I really do believe that in a way that it's important that when opportunities come around, that you don't close those doors. And I think that's what I did. I didn't close the doors. Um, I think there are a lot of directors um, and performers who have their sights set on doing one thing and one thing only, which was, you know, 
they want to be on Broadway. So they set their sights and they, they do everything they can to get there, or they, they want to um, do TV or they want to do film. Um, I never, I never had a, a directive to myself about only doing one thing. I always was very open to what came my way. Um, you know, which is what happened with the circus. That was, that was a total accident that happened um, with Tim Holst, you know. Um, he had called my agent in New York and said they were looking for a director. And my agent said, well, I know the guy you should talk to, Phil McKinley. And he said, okay, great. And, but he said he's in Tokyo right now. I was directing, I think it was Hair in Tokyo. And um, so Tim said, well, we need somebody right now. So we need to find somebody. So they actually hired somebody else. And when I got back, my agent said, look, there's this guy, Tim Holst, that wants to talk to you in the future. And I said, okay, great. And about two weeks later, Tim called Brett Adams. Brett Adams was my agent and said, hey, Brett, um, we've lost our first choice. And Brett said, oh, no, you haven't lost your first choice. You haven't seen your first choice. Love it. <laughs> and that was great. And I met Tim on 42nd Street and 9th at a cafe at a small diner. And um, he had this briefcase. <laughs> he said, I want you to talk to Mr. Feld. And he pulled out this cell phone, which was like the size <laughs> of it was like eight inches long and three inches wide, and, you know. And so I talked to Mr. Feld and he said he wanted me to go see the two circuses. And so I went out and saw them that weekend and then went back to meet him and it all happened. And it probably happened because I grew up on a farm, mm. so I in a farm area. So I was around a lot of animals. I had horses and we had cattle, we had buffalo. I my father was a car dealer and used to bring home he he'd barter for stuff. And I remember one time he brought home a monkey a spider monkey. And I had a spider monkey for a while. And we used to put on shows in the backyard with the monkey. Wow. Um, so I know, so I grew up around animals. And the reason the guy who they first hired before me, um, he didn't realize that he'd have to be around animals. And he said he, he didn't like animals, he was afraid of them. So he ended up not doing it. So that was one reason. Thank God he did, because I had a great, great run there. I still keep in touch with the Felds. You know, absolutely. But I love circus. Love circus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was the the initial thought, though? I mean, I, I mean, I, what was the initial thought when that opportunity presented itself? It was just, well, you know, I was an, an I was an assistant to George Abbott, who was okay. like one of the fathers of American theater. Mr. Abbott, um, as most people know him, he was a hundred years old at the time that I was assisting him. And I asked him, I said, how do you, how do you stay interested? You know, how do you keep doing it? And he said two things. He said, I never do anything twice the same way. And secondly, I do things that scare the hell out of me. And that was it. And I remembered that. So I look for things that are going to be scary, that are going to be, you know, challenging. Because I think that's kind of when you do your best work. Same reason why I went and decided to do Spider-Man. It was scary. It was, you know, <laughs> wow. why not jump in, jump into the deep end. Well, that makes sense. It, 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 well, when you're scared, it, it can um, ignite your imagination. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's, that's why my career has done 
has had the trajectory it's had. Um, you know, I started off by teaching school in Henderson, Nevada, and a teacher there on the faculty dared me one day to audition for the show at the Lido at the Dunes Hotel. And I went and auditioned and I got it. So <laughs> I, left, I left teaching and started to, did, I did worked in the Lido degree at the um, Stardust. And then I moved about a year later to the Dunes and did the Dunes show, the Casino de Paris, the all French review. And there wasn't a single <laughs> French person in it. <laughs> Now, when you were teaching, were you like just teaching regular academics or were you the music teacher or? I was music. I had um, the uh, vocal and band. And I have to say to this day, I, I was a terrible band teacher. Terrible. Oh. I, I was a great I was a great vocal teacher because that was more, you know, in my line of work. And I had majored in voice. Um, and the year I went there to this junior high, when I started, there were like 48 kids in the in the music department. Mm. And about three weeks later, I had 152. Wow. I was, I was young. I had hair down to my shoulders. <laughs> I wore jeans and sandals. To, <laughs> and it was an 80, 82% Mormon school. The, the school by 82% Mormon. So I'm sure this principal hired me just to shake things up. And so I promised these kids would go on field trips and you know, there were days where if I didn't feel like teaching, I'd say, let's go outside and we'll listen. I want you to listen to the sounds. And what music do you hear from just the sounds of nature? Mm. So if they went, oh, this guy's really cool. He used to call me Mr. Mac. And um, I, I love teaching. And, and that year, in fact, my students won the district uh, vocal. They wow. were great. I had a very, very unusual, unusual group of people, a group of students. Um, and then I left that because I know I wanted to perform, I guess. And um, and then the performance in Vegas led to, uh, I, I also performed at the University of Las Vegas, UNLV, in their theater department. And two ladies there, Joan Snyder and Marion Stevens, they asked me to come on board. They were opening a new theater and they needed a, um, an education program. And they heard that I had an education degree, which I did. Hmm. So I said, okay. And they said, we want you to want to know, will you write a grant for us to, for the education program? And I said, well, okay. I mean, half of these things happened because I didn't know any better. And um, so I said, well, how much time do I have? And they said three days. And I went, and it was for the National Endowment of the Arts. So I wrote this, this, this grant up and we sent it in and it was awarded. It was the largest uh, grant awarded to the state of Nevada. That's yeah. amazing. It was great. Of course, so you never wrote a grant before, right? <laughs> I hadn't. So see, that's that's why those <laughs> things are good. Because when you don't know what you're doing, sometimes that's the best way to approach stuff. Hmm. You know, that's the best way to go in. The same thing with the circus. You know, I didn't know any better when I started the circus. So I went to Baraboo and looked at all the old records and wanted to see what circus was like and what, you know, I saw beautiful video of the circus in the 30s and the 20s when they were like unloading the the car the train in chicago it was amazing so when i went to winter quarters i remember this so vividly i started lining the animals up and rather than having all the elephants together and like all the zebras together i started doing two by twos you know when mm. we did the carousel boy the the uh, trainers were so upset with me we can't do that. 
we're not going to be able to do that. It's going to be ridiculous, you know. And I didn't, I said, well, I don't understand. I said, I looked at the old records in Baraboo and they used to do it all the time. So finally, I'm, I remember standing around, there were like five people around me, you know, all arguing and Gunther walked up. Mm, great one. And Gunther, and Gunther said, what's the problem? And I explained it to him that I wanted to do like two by twos, you know, going from the smallest animal to the elephant. And uh, he turned to the guys and he said, I think we should do what he wants. End of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was great. You know. uh, of course, man. The great Gumba Gable Williams. Wow. Man, you know. Awesome. Awesome. Now, yeah. you, you have to tell me, you know, um, when did you get the director's bug? I mean, because the way it sounds uh, is not necessarily something that, you know, I, and, and I wouldn't know. I mean, of course, you put on shows in your childhood on the farm with animals and things like that. And it's something I directed. I produced. <laughs> I ran the ticket sales. I starred in them. <laughs> well, so you yeah. already knew you were a showman. <laughs> yeah. In fact, what is so weird, this is no lie. The neighbors next door had a barn. Okay. that they used as their garage and it had a dirt floor where you'd park the car and then there was like a level like a 12 inch step up and there was like a platform where you stored like garden implements and you know your lawnmowers and that i actually put on shows in the barn wow and we we hung curtains and you know had sheets that we took over and i'd rob i'd go in without my mother knowing and take the good sheets and <laughs> oh man put up curtain. <laughs> And then she'd come to the show and go, wait a minute, those are my sheep. So, <laughs> well, did you charge? I, <laughs> I charged, we charged a nickel and everybody got a free glass of lemonade with their, you know, I was, <laughs> I should have known you should, I should have charged, you know, nothing to get in and 25 cents for the lemonade. Right. Because <laughs> that's what we know. You make your, you make your profit in concessions. Right. Ticket sales, you know, but um, I had started, um, in college, I was um, choreographing because I was mm. a dancer. Okay. So I, I was doing some choreography there, started back in children's theater. And then um, when I got out of college, um, I, I was doing some directing, you know, to, I mean, in college you had to direct because I in, to get my degree. So I did a couple of directing projects there. I, I ended up directing because when I, when I did the shows in Vegas, the Dune show, particularly, um, I did two shows a night, three on Saturday, no day off, no vacation for two and a half years. Wow. And in fact, I had all four wisdom teeth pulled and went in and did the show that night. So, you know, I was bound and determined. I passed out after the first number. They had to, they had to revive me. But I was there for the second number. It got me up in time. Let's go. Um, <laughs> the smelling soul, smelling soul. That's right. Let's go. Get him up. Get him up. Get the costume change. Let's go. Um, so because I didn't have an understudy at the mm. time, you know. So I, I started directing because I think a couple of reasons. One, I, I really enjoyed watching actors that I had directed, you know, when the play was up. I really enjoyed watching them, you know doing, you know, performing almost more than I enjoyed performing myself. Mm. Um, there was something really rewarding about that. Um, look, and I'd lie if I didn't tell you there is a bit of control freak in me. So having control, um, 
when I moved to New York, I was performing. I was I was uh, acting, and um, what gave me kind of a start there was I um, was an assistant to Robert Johansson, who was at Paper Mill Playhouse, and they gave me a chance to direct there. So hmm. that, and then what really launched it was Frank Young from Theater Under the Stars in Houston. He called me one day. He said, "Phil, if you want to become an independent director." I'll give you 18 months of work to start you out. And he did. Wow. And that that's how I was able to go out and start directing independently. And wow. the other thing was too, I and I tell this to anyone who wants to direct and is young, you need to take any opportunity to direct you, that you can. Um, dinner theaters, regional theaters are a great place to start, you know, or you need to work with another director and develop your skills so that there's a couple of guys that have been my assistants that I have then later recommended that the theaters hire them to direct. Mm. And they and then they have to start building their career. Um, and then just, again, I go back to, I just never said no, you know? Now, how did you handle uh, the bumps in the road, the failures, you know, the things when they didn't go so, you know, they didn't go the way you intended them to go? How do you handle that on the journey? The failures that I've had, if you want to call them that, have also been wonderful learning experiences. Mm. And I talk a lot with um, students, college students, about failing up. Mm. That you only fail down if you if if you don't look at what you've learned from that experience and go, okay, I don't have to do that again. I can I can try something else. Um, zombie prom was a disappointment because it didn't, you know, it didn't open. But at the time, the the failing up was it got the largest cash advance of any off Broadway show ever when Sam French got the rights to it. Mm. So there was a success there, and it now I get checks from it all the time. Wow. So I can't call it a failure because high schools do it, colleges do it, everybody does that show. Um, and 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 meeting uh, John Dempsey and Dana Rowe was great. I mean, I had a great time doing that. Um, there have been things that may not have been financially successful, but I felt were artistically successful. So I think it's important to look to look at each um, each uh, experience and figure out what is the positive. What what did you get from it? Um, and and I so I have to say I don't I don't think there's ever been there have been disappointments. I wouldn't call them failure. I was disappointed that when um, Boy from Oz that when Hugh just you know we had Hugh for a year and that we couldn't go on with that show. We we had other people interested in doing the lead, but unfortunately. The lead producer on that, Ben Gannon, lovely guy from Australia, um, he got very ill and got cancer. Mm. And so that engine, you know, he, he was a driving force in that. And that that hurt, you know. And and then we closed because we were successful. He was amazingly successful. The show, you know, even though the critics didn't really care for the show, I mean, the audience loved it. And that's another thing, I think, for me. I've, I've never been able to figure out how you direct for the critics. 
<laughs> I don't I don't know how you do that. Um, I direct for the audience. Mm. I, I direct with things that I think, oh, the audience is going to love this. And the audience is going to respond to it. Um, I'm working on a piece now with Anna Devere Smith, Ella, uh, a musical about Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. We just did a reading of it in New York. And it's incredible. And she is phenomenal. Mm. Um, her research is just beyond anybody oh, I've ever brilliant. worked with. She's absolutely yeah. brilliant. And it's a great experience because Anna has never written a musical. Hmm. So this is her first musical. Um, so I'm ever grateful to have that as an, a, you know, and I'm learning a great deal from that. Um, opening up all, you know, I always say open up new doors and windows, but I'm, I'm trying to, th I'm trying to really think, Jonathan, if I've had a failure where I, I don't. I don't think I really have, and I and I. I don't mean that to be. No, know. I get it, and I, I think this. I, you know, your your attitude towards it. You know, I think that's probably what the answer is. I mean, I think we all have. It's just the ebbs and flows of life. This business, um, yeah. you're going to have those low moments, and I. I guess it's how you interpret it. You know, I. I think that's how how you look at it. Yeah, I think I think what's important and, and has been important for my career as well is that I never lost sight lost sight of the ability to dream. You know, you should always dream and keep your dream. Even when you fail, don't lose sight of the dream. The failure is only the means by which you get to the dream. Because if you fail, that's one more way you don't have to worry about ever doing again. Now think of a new way to do it, but keep your eye on the dream. That's what you got to do, always. Uh, very early on, I talked to my agents and talked to my manager and said, I don't just want to work in New York. Mm -hmm. I want to work everywhere. Because um, I love the experience of going into different cultures. And that's a huge learning experience, like in Japan. I've done five shows there now. And I'm going back to do another revival of Boy From Oz there in June. Wow. Just being immersed in a different culture changes, gives me an entirely different viewpoint and skills of how to deal with people. Because, you know, directing so much of it is psychology. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, you love the performance out of some performers. You, you, you know, demand the performance out of others. Um, some of you, some of them, you get out of the way hmm. and let them do their thing. Um, and you have to figure that out. And the circus taught me a great deal about that because of working with all the different cultures. Wow. Um, you know, you approach a Chinese acrobat far different than you approach a Russian acrobat. Hmm. Very, very different culture, very different background. And you have to kind of know what those backgrounds are. You know, um, I remember very vividly making a huge mistake. Um, in I remember him coming and saying, what the hell did you do? I, there was a, um, a contortionist on the unit. And I believe, I don't think she was Brazilian. I think she was, she might've come from Mexico. And she had this great act. And so I was, she was rehearsing and her husband was the guy who 
gave her the props, you know, the amateur, the different equipment she needed to do the contortion act with. And I was rehearsing with them. And I was telling her, I was saying, look, I think you should do this. And I think, you know, we should make this shorter. We should make this longer. Um, and then I said, you know, and I said to the, and I didn't know at the time it was her husband. And I said, well, can you bring the prop, you know, just being a little quicker to me in all this. Well, the next day, um, Tim Holtz comes to me and said, what happened at your rehearsal? I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, she's gone. I said, what do you mean gone? He said, they left overnight. They packed up and left. And I said, well, I, I was working with her and I was telling her, he went, oh my God. He said, you were telling her? He said, you should have been telling him. You should have been talking to him, not to wow. her. And that, and that relationship was that it was he was the, the dominant person that I should have been speaking with. And in that culture, the men, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of dehumanizing him. And I didn't mean to at all. So that became a real lesson of, uh-oh, that was, <laughs> that was a failure. Fell <laughs> up on that one. Um, so I think th the other memory I have of the circus, which I love, is there was a Russian troupe mm -hmm. and none of them spoke English. And there was a young, one of the, they had a, a, a son who I think was like 10 years old, 10, 11 years old. And um, of course, you know this, that when they put all those kids in the one room schoolhouse on the unit, they all end up speaking each other's languages in about a week or two mm -hmm. and they become fluent. It's amazing. It's like, <laughs> well, this kid, he knew English. So in order to work with the act, I had to tell him, I'd have to tell him what I wanted and then he would tell the act. Well, over the course of rehearsal, <laughs> it was so funny because I got really upset with him one day. And I said, you know, and I, you know, I had that thing, the chopping hand. Yeah. <laughs> so I was saying, you tell them, I want them to get this and get it right. And I, they need to, you know, do the trick with the music on this note. <laughs> And I said, and you tell him exactly like that. Tell him what I said. Tell him my exact words. And he, he turned around, this 10, 11 year old boy, and he went, in Russian, do this. And he started imitating me. And it was, I got to laughing really hard. And, and the, the parents did too. But it was so interesting to watch that because during rehearsals, he was the leader of the troupe. Wow. And as soon as that rehearsal was over, he converted back to being a 10-year-old boy. It was fascinating to watch. It was hmm. great. How did your time with Ringling Brothers uh, inform your next steps to like, you know, Spider-Man or to Ben-Hur? Things well, that... Ringling established me as a director who handles large spectacle performances. So Ringling led to um, Ben Hur Live, mm. where I did, you know, the whole thing live at the O2 Dome in London and had five chariot races, five chariots in a race, did all the stunts. So Ringling led to my work, I think, with Steve Wynn, mm. uh, where I did uh, Showstoppers for him and also took over Lorev and, and redid Lorev for him. Um, Ringling, so that that established me by this is a guy that can handle a very large you know format um and and i i was grateful for that because i love doing that it's a it's a 
the great thing is I'm working on a play right now too, really interesting play by um, a guy named Greg Hurwitz, who is the number one international best-selling author in New York Times. Hmm. And it's, it's just five characters. So I love the contrast. I go off and do a show that maybe has 150 people in it. And then I do some, a one woman show. I did a one woman show two or three years ago that went to the Edinburgh Festival that got, was awarded one of the top five pits about um, Wallace Simpson. Hmm. So I love the contrast. And fortunately, I have a manager, Angela Jane Kaplan, who really gets me and understands that you can't pigeonhole me. Um, because there were people in the past, you know, everybody in the business wants to do that. They want to pigeonhole you. Oh, he directs dramas or he directs musicals or she, you know, only does costumes or she only does it. There are a lot of people out there that are multi-talented. Hmm. And I've been fortunate to have my management team and my agent team realize that and realize that I also now at this age, um, I like to go do things with people that I enjoy being around. Hmm. Uh, Kansas City Starlight. I've directed more shows there now than the other director, more musicals. And they honored me recently, a couple of years ago, and they have a big dis, um, museum and stuff. It was incredible. I thought, oh my God, I've gotten so old now. But <laughs> I go back and I purposely, I, I, I literally called them at one point and said, I really miss you know, working there in the summer. And they said, well, we can't afford you anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a Broadway director, blah, blah, blah. I said, you don't know that. I said, you've got to make me an offer, you know, because I like, I like their theater and I love the experience of, it's only two outdoor theaters left in the nation. Wow. So it's, a, it's great. And I've, I've done Wizard of Oz there, I think five times, four or five times. And I had like munchkins. I had like 120 munchkins one year. It was great. All these little kids. You know, talk about a show. There's a show with kids, with dogs, with flying monkeys, flying witches. You know, it gives you every heart attack you could possibly ever want. You know, <laughs> and you have pyro going off. But I, I like to do that now. I like to go back and and people who gave me my start, I want to say, no, you know, don't consider the fact that, oh, he's worked on Broadway and he's worked in Salzburg and oh, he's too big now. Uh, that's I, I go because I love the work, mm. you know. Um, so I'm, I'm getting ready to do that for a guy named Patrick Cassidy, you know, who was um, Jack Cassidy and Shirley Jones's son. He's okay. got a theater in Tennessee now. So same thing with him. He said, I can't afford you. I said, you don't know what you can afford. Make me an <laughs> offer. <laughs> so treat me well and I'll be there. You know? Well, I mean, and that's the beauty of it. I mean, that you really have a heart for making art, for making something beautiful, but more importantly, having that camaraderie with people. I mean, there's right. a spirit there. I mean, because I think about that, you know, I, I often, you know, think about how you could go from this nice quaint fireside dinner theater in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, right. to the glamor of Madison Square Garden, you know, <laughs> with the greatest show on earth, you know, and, and I mean, that, that, we have an interesting relationship, how you took right. from that place in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. And I remember you whispering that to me, which is, uh, here, here's a full disclosure, here's a surprise. 
how I kind of knew I had the role before I had it. You were like, you kind I remember you said this when you said, I really like, I purposely have you here so you can get used to being in the round, wink. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I was just happy to have a gig. Because, you know, my initial thing, I was trying to raise money so I could go to Europe and continue to operate. Here, this yeah. beautiful opportunity came to uh, join the greatest show on earth. Which Boy, I'm did that change your life. It did. That's well, great. you know, I mean, obviously, we know what's next for you. You have several projects out there right now. And um, you are you at the point where you even have to bother to look? I mean, everything is kind of... <laughs> look. I, I never stop looking hmm. because sometimes you have to, you know, search for things you want to, you, you know, you want to do, or you, you have to create the uh, the momentum behind something. I am fortunate that things do come to me, you know, people, and especially if they're looking at doing something big, you know, I'm one of the few names that comes up. Mm. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I got a frog in my throat. No problem. Um, um, but I like to do new work. Mm. I really like to do new work. Or I like to do something, if I'm going to do something that's a standard, if it's Oklahoma or you know 42nd Street, I want to see if I can find a different take to do it now. Um, so I, I'm fortunate that way. And I'm fortunate that, I, look, I, I still, I still people, I still let people know I'm interested. I, I drop, you know, it's very important. I tell young directors, drop postcards and mm. don't send an email. Drop a handwritten card to people. It makes a huge difference that you write to them and take the time to write and, and say, hey, what's up? You know, I'm sitting here in Palm Springs and it's hot. Get me out of here. Send me somewhere. <laughs> um, so I try and stay in touch with those producers who I've had relationships with. I still like to stay active. I'm not ready to hang it up yet. You know, um, you were close though. You were close at one point. And then Spider Man, Spider Man. <laughs> I was very close. I I I had it. I'd left New York. I moved to Davenport, Iowa and said, I'm going to teach. I had a couple of offers to teach. I was going to teach and um, I moved there and lo and behold, they called and said, how would you like to do (laughs) Spider-Man? And people, a lot of people in the business, they, they asked me, why did you do that? Why, whatever possessed you? Because who wanted to take that over, you know? It had such a, a a history, you know, at the paper. Yeah. And to be honest, what happened is um, I, I got to see it and I thought, well, this would be challenging. But more than that, I thought, you know, if this succeeds, I'm going to go back to Iowa. If this fails, I'm going to go back to Iowa. So <laughs> my life wasn't going to change, right. you know. And then when I saw it, the thing that I realized there were like 300 people who were, you know, if you count all the performers, the stage crew, the ushers, the, you know, the box office, everyone. And I truly believed 
there, there was something there and I truly believe it was a matter of saving those jobs. Mm. And, and that became, you know, a dedication to me. And I'm real aware of that now, more so than ever. Same thing happened with Larev. We had a really difficult night, one night, really bad. And um, the cast was like, how could you stay? I, you, you know, why would you stay? And I said, because there are, there are two or 300 of you that need a job. I'm not gonna walk out on you. Yeah. You know, why would I do that? Um, so with Spider-Man, I thought, I saw it and I thought, again, I, and I was very honest with the producers. I said, I cannot in any way, shape or form guarantee you good reviews because the critics have already decided. They've made the decision what it's gonna be. And I said, I don't care if you brought in, you know, Florence Ziegfeld and Michelangelo do the set from heaven and, you know, and God himself was the producer <laughs> that the critics had made up their mind. I said, but I think I know the way to make this become successful for the audience. And it was, I mean, people, people don't remember that thing ran for another two and a half years. That's you right. Know, That's right. It, it, and had we been able to, to knock down the weekly nut of what it cost to run it, I think it would still probably be running, but it was just, it was a very, very expensive show to, very to, uh, to run, very ambitious. You know? but a great, I'll tell you my best, I'll tell you my best reward from doing that show. I walked out in the lobby one night after the show and we had these confetti cannons or like, you know, the streamer cannons, right? which to this day, the, 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 the cast and the, and the um, stage manager was like, oh God, we're going to bring in circus. Oh God, we're going to shoot confetti. You know, they were really like looking down, looking down their noses. Right, out. right. People went nuts. You know how that happens. You shoot that and people, they feel part of it. You know, it was like webbing. So these two boys were out in the lobby on this big staircase and they gathered up this webbing and they were throwing it at each other like Spider-Man <laughs> capture. And they were having the best time. And finally, this one boy, he stopped and he said, wait, I have to tell you something to this friend of his. And he said, wasn't this just the best Broadway show ever? Uh, and that was it. Wow. That the two young boys had just seen a Broadway show. And I thought, those guys will come back to Broadway. They'll come back to shows, you know? So there's the, there's, for me, that was the reward. Now you recently did work with Big Apple Circus. I did. So I, I'd love to for you to just kind of walk us through just getting back in the ring again and um and yeah. building that beautiful show. I had been asked to do Big Apple two other times. And for various reasons it didn't happen. And as far back as when Paul Binder was there. And um so again, you never know. The guy who was a producer on Spider-Man is one of the producers with Nick on, on Big Apple. And he called, me, he called me in like January and he said, I'm thinking of doing the Big Apple. Would you do it? Would you direct it? I said, absolutely. Because it was the one I hadn't done. Yeah. I'd always wanted to do Big Apple. Because I love one ring European style yeah. circle. Love that. So... And he said, well, Nick Walenda is going to be involved. And I said, great, you know, he obviously has an amazing reputation in the circus. And then another guy named Arnie Granite. So we, we started. And then I'll tell you, 
I heard in January. And then once in a while, Michael would call and say, I think we're going to do it. We're trying to get the rights. We're trying to buy it. And then it wasn't until May or June when they said, okay, we're going to do it. And I went, whoa, wait a minute. Three months. Um, so we put it together. And luckily, um, Nick and I both were able to reach out to circus people we knew. Um, so there were no auditions. It was just, it, we were looking on video and what they'd done or people we'd known, you know, like Diana Vedashinka with her dachshunds. I knew her. God, I love those damn dachshunds. Um, <laughs> and we found these incredible acts all over the world, yeah. you know. Uh, a lot of them were, some of them were people that Nick knew, some were people I knew, and then there were people brand new that we saw a video and went, wow, this is a great act. What I like about Big Apple are twofold. The closeness that you're so, it's so intimate. Um, and also what I did this year um, is we did video and we interviewed all the performers. And during the show, there was video that where the performers talked about their background, their history. And I love that because, you know, I, I, I met all these circus people and they have these fascinating backgrounds and the audience never knew it. So this is the way I went, wait a minute. So when you're changing the set or, you know, before, before the, their act, even after or in the, in the middle of it, there were these videos that they talked talked about their background, talked about their family, and the audience loved it because they got to know they were they're human beings, they're, you know, like you and, and you know, you and me, but yeah. they do these extraordinary things. And um, the theme was making the impossible possible. And, you know, that came out of my years at Ringling where I used to say, circus people dream the impossible and make it possible. And so that kind of became the theme and we kind of, moved everything toward that but um and there was a storyline which you really can't do in the arena really really tough in a three in a three ring or for a large arena to tell a story you could in the one ring because it's a closer you know more intimate environment so there was a a bit of a story too so that was fun you know to take a different approach to it um what what i did do and i'm glad i did I made sure that you could pull any act out of the running order and do the show. Wow. Because of COVID. Mm. And I knew, I went, I'm going to plan for this. We had 23 versions of that show. Wow. By the time we closed, they had done the show in 23 versions because of COVID of taking acts out or, you know, having to move things around. So I'm, I'm, I will remember that in my future because you know how it is. If an act is out, sometimes you have to shift, you know, four or five things around. We didn't have to do that, which was great. Again, that's brilliant. That comes from the fact that, you know, I, I think the, the one way I can describe you as a director is you're all heart. And obviously, <laughs> no, but, you know, I know- There are a lot of people that disagree with you about that. No, but I, I really believe it. I mean. Listen, you 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 have the same manic craziness we all do as artists, but the brilliance is there. It's obvious. 
but more importantly, the humanity is there. And I've, and I've heard that across the board, whether it's our fireside friends, fireside dinner theater, that wonderful right. theater, or it's the big top. They also, it's like, you know, he's in the trenches with us. And yeah. the fact that you're constantly thinking of the what ifs, something like that. I hope directors, creatives listening in on this really take notes on that. I mean, to oh, we, we have to, we have to adjust now. It's a brave new world. Right. We have to create shows a lot differently. And for you to actually think ahead and go, we have to have different versions. So what the audience is getting isn't compromise. You know, you don't come in with the show limping. The thing, the thing that was great for me is when I would hear an act's going to be out, because um, the arc of the show, you know, how the highs and lows. What was so, what I was so grateful for is Georgia would do the nightly report, and I'd always look to see was there a standing ovation, because a lot of times there were a couple of acts that got ovations in the middle of the show, wow. which, as you know, in circus is really difficult. Alan, um, Alan Silva, who was there, who was our ringmaster and also did the um, the aerial act, he he would get a lot of times to get a stand ovation after his act. He's wonderful. He, he's great. He's great. He I I got to find something else for him because I what I like about Alan is that he's not only a great circus performer, he's a good actor. Mm. And I I I've got to I'm. I'm trying to think what we can do. I'm kind of, you know, that, so, so there's an example of when you say, do I look for things? I look for things because I meet people mm. and I go, Ooh, that guy's really interesting. What, what could we do with that person? You know? Um, so that, that's kind of my, my thing. Now, In fact, you, you just gave me an idea. I just thought, of <laughs> man, I just thought of it just now. Anyway. Well, speaking of which, do you have your creative or your your rituals? Like what would be your creative rituals that are, you know, that you stick to in helping you, I guess, you know, produce what you do or actually prepare you? As far as um, real rituals, uh, I used to, you know, I think that's changed over the years. I, I used to block out everything in my head. Uh, even on paper, rather, especially like as a circus, we would do that white model meeting mm-hmm. where I would I would know from beginning to end what was going to happen in that show, and I and I had great stage managers and assistants, and I felt because the piece was so large, I had to know what was going on because in in a lot of ways, you know, staging those big spectacles is a lot of mathematics. Mm. You're using math all the time, you know. You have 70 people and you've got a certain amount of space. How do they have to be spaced out? How many go in the ring? How many go on the track? How many go in between the ring? You know, and you, you really work in mathematics a great deal of time to create pictures. Um, so, and as I've gotten older and I used to block out every show I ever did on paper, I would block the entire show before I, I went there, especially like in Kansas City when I was doing a Wizard of Oz. If I had 120 kids, I really would go in and block everything out. So I knew, and I had kids that came in from stage right and left stage right. Kids came from left and left stage left. So they were never crossing over. And if they crossed over during the number, they crossed back. 
so that the Wranglers were on that side of the stage and didn't have to run around. Now that I learned from Don Arden from doing the Lido de Paris, because I watched him how he did that. Mm. Um, so that was a ritual that I really used to block everything out. I don't do it as much anymore because I go into the room and inevitably whatever I've put on paper changes because I see something in a performer and I go, oh, wait a minute, that performer is going to make the whole scene adjust a different way. That person moves a different way. So to block out every show, I'll, I'll, I'll instantly change it. And then once you change uh, two pages of it, it's, it's all going to change. It's all going to adjust. Okay. So, um, but that comes from the experience of being able to think on your feet mm. and being able to just know, having done it for so long, um, I'm fortunate, you know, knock on wood, that I can come up with that stuff relatively quickly. Um, so I do, I do spend a lot of time, like I'm working on this Ella Fitzgerald piece right now. I do find a lot, I spend a lot of time listening to her music mm -hmm. and I try and make it, I don't, it's not like I go to the office and spend five hours listening to her music. I try and have it on in the house. So it's, it's surrounding me um, because every once in a while I'll hear something that she doesn't go, oh, wait a minute. Let me hear, I need to hear that piece again because maybe that's something we can use. Mm -hmm. um, so I, if, if, if those could be considered rituals, that would be a ritual. Um, but I, I mean, my only real ritual is I wear black. Yes, I know. It's easier for the laundry, you say. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Because when you go out on the road, everything goes in with everything. You don't have to worry about it. You know, um, so and it makes it easier. I can I can live out of a carry on for about three weeks. So long as it's clean. That's right. <laughs> you know, buy those shirts that you can rinse out. I used to remember Gunther used to tell me this. It's so funny. Gunther used to, he used to say that he had sometimes he'd just jump in the shower with his clothes on. That's how he'd, he'd clean them and then he'd hang them up. You know, I can't believe that because he was always on the go, always, always, always. Yeah, I mean that was that was probably, I that was a that was a stroke of luck that mm -hmm. I happened to go to Ringling when Gunther was still there. Yeah, because man, he more times than not he ideas that I had. He said, "Well, let me try it." You know, shooting those sparklers off with elephants. Right. That hadn't been done. And yeah, Gunther was the one who said, we're going to try it. We'll try and we'll try and make it work. Wow. And, you know, I remember the first time we did that, the elephants were lined up at the portal and we had the, the, the stabs clear down at the other end. And we went, okay, here we go. One, two, three. And they blew them off. And those elephants were like, <laughs> like oh, wow. Like, what the heck? And eventually they got used to it, you know. Yeah. So he 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 taught me a great deal about how to work with animals, mm. you know, tricks of the trade. Always in a job. Oh, I do. Oh, I'll tell you another one. I love. Hi. This was about. I was doing Ben her live. Okay. And in one scene we had a vulture. And the vulture, when the scene opened, just flew off this rock, and flew to the back door and then flew out the, the back door. 
and we so we we were doing we were doing the team of the vulture, and it actually was supposed to fly around the arena once and then out the back door. So we get to this show, and we get to the vulture, and the lights come up, and the vulture takes off and just boom, lands on the ground, and then waddles out of the arena, goes walking out of the arena like. Wait a <laughs> And I went to the trainer and I was like, what, 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 what's happening? He goes, I don't know. I don't know. I went, okay, well, let's see what happens. So we'll try it again. Next night, same thing. Boom. And I go, what? I said, I said, what are you doing? I said, okay, hold on a minute. What, when he, I said, what did you do different? He said, I didn't do anything different. I did the same thing. He said, only thing was, you know, I fed the vulture before the show and I went, you what? <laughs> he fed the vulture right. before the show, and the thing was so full mm. it couldn't fly, and it was just like <clears throat> land on the ground. Now, fast forward to Spider-Man. Get this. So, we had these things with the guy. The 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 Spider-Man would fly around the room, and every once in a while, they would end up tripping the automatic shutdown because the way they did it is that the flight was so wide and you had a certain amount of space that if they went outside that all the automation shut down because they could have run into a wall or whatever. So this kept happening. And I finally went to this kid that I kept having to, and I said, okay, tell me something. What did you eat? What did you eat tonight? He said, well, I went out and I had steak and I had, you know, Rosie, I have this whole film. I said, all right, what did you have last night? He said, oh, I didn't have time to eat. I went out and had a thing of sushi. I went, that's it. You can't eat a big meal. And that was it. Wow. That extra weight was making the trajectory go out. So we had to, he had to like change his eating habits and we had to change the, the automatic stops on it. But I learned that from a vulture. <laughs> I learned that from a circus, a vulture, and been here live. Well, here's the badge. Well, here's the million dollar question: Which is easier to work with, the four-legged or two-legged bambles? Ooh, <laughs> you know the answer to that. <laughs> oh my gosh, those four-legged are don't talk back. <laughs> they don't more. have to learn lines, <laughs> right? I'm with the the great one. You're you're the great one now. You're, you're Is the, that you're right? The, you're the great one now. <laughs> oh, great one what? That's the question. <laughs> well, let it. me give it to you, man. I got to give you the great announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, he is the one, the only, Phil McKinley. Thanks for stopping <laughs> by in Centering. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks again to Philip William McKinley. The Circus Voices 2022 Spring Season is a co-production between Circus Talk and In Centering. Join Circus Talk today and find the talent or the job you've been looking for on the Circus Industries International Casting Marketplace. We have a special offer for Circus Voices listeners. Receive 15% off your annual membership by using the code Circus Voices. 2022. 
Our podcast design was created by Emily Holt and music composed by Book Kinnison. You can follow the Circus Voices podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. This episode is also available on CircusTalk.com and the YouTube channel, Big Top Voice. 